Well, please be seated and let's pray together. Father, as we come to these wonderful verses now, these solemn verses, these greatly significant verses, we pray, Father, that you would help me to speak on them with clarity, with liberty, with authority, and that you would fill our hearts with awestruck worship at Christ and all that he has done for us in his death. That you would fill us with a courageous faith that trusts in him and lead us on in loving service of him for your glory's sake. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in recent weeks here at Cromlin EPC, we've been coming back time and time again to Luke's account of the arrest, uh, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And tonight, for one last time in this series, we come back to this account of the crucifixion, which of course culminates in the death and then the burial of Jesus. So please do have those verses that we read earlier on open in front of you. We're in Luke 23 and verses 44 through to 56. And I'd like us to notice that this passage begins, doesn't it, with these three verses in which three different events all take place, one after the other, each of them in connection with the crucifixion in some way. So just notice those three events in verses 44, 45, and 46. The sky goes dark, the curtain in the temple is torn, and Jesus cries out to his Father. And as we're going to see, each of these three events carries a great deal of significance in showing us something of what Jesus accomplished for us in going to the cross. So we'll begin by just looking at these three events in turn. And first we're told, aren't we, that the darkness fell. And what is that event there to show us? Well, it's showing us the meaning of Christ's death, the meaning of Christ's death. And so Luke writes, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Now we need to understand that Luke is using the, the Jewish clock here as he describes these events. The crucifixion of Jesus began at about nine o'clock in the morning, that Friday, and then after Jesus had already been hanging on the cross for about three hours. At 12 noon, or the sixth hour, as the Jews would have called it, darkness fell on the whole land for the next three hours, until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And so right in the middle of the day, at the time when you'd expect the sun to be at its very brightest, Darkness descended, and darkness remained for three hours, while the sun's light failed. Now what is going on here? What's causing this darkness? 
Some people have suggested maybe this is a, a sudden storm that gathered. In that region, uh, you do sometimes get these very dark storms. They're called Sirocco storms, uh, apparently. Uh, and it's caused when a strong wind blows from the south. It gathers sand from the, the Sahara Desert and then moisture from the Mediterranean Sea before then resulting in these dark, heavy dust clouds gathering over Israel. Some people have said, well, maybe that is what is happening here, and that is what is causing the darkness. Um, Others have argued, well, maybe this is an eclipse that is taking place. Now, we know that that is certainly not what is taking place here. We know that for two very good reasons. Uh, Firstly, of course, an eclipse is something that only lasts for a few minutes rather than for three whole hours. And as well as that, we know that the crucifixion coincided with the Passover, which means that it took place at full moon, when it's impossible to have an eclipse. And so whatever it was, this wasn't an eclipse that was causing this. But whatever the secondary causes of this darkness might have been, and of course it's not really important what the secondary causes might have been, because scripture doesn't tell us these things, what is important is the primary cause of this darkness. And that is that God is at work here. And he is wielding his creation once again to draw people's attention to his son. We might compare it to the start of Luke's gospel at the birth of Jesus, when God did in some ways a similar kind of thing. And the star in the sky above Bethlehem was used by God to herald the birth of a new king, even the promised Messiah. And here also God puts a sign up in the sky with that intention of drawing attention to the significance of what is taking place concerning his son. Only now the sign in the sky is not a a bright star lighting things up, but rather darkness falling for these three hours and the sun's light failing. Why darkness, we should ask? What is the darkness here representative of? The answer is that the darkness represents the judgment of God upon sin. In scripture, very often, darkness is a symbol of the judgment of God. There are many examples we could give of this, but just listen to these words of Zephaniah chapter 1, it's verse 15, uh, describing God's judgment coming against the people of Judah. He says there, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is what the darkness there at the cross means. It is a symbol of God's judgment against sin. And you see, God is showing that at the cross, this judgment against sin fell upon his son Jesus, though he himself was without sin. But as our substitute, as our representative, he stood in our place at the cross and remarkably he suffered the judgment of God that our sin deserves. And you see, the darkness shows us the meaning of Christ's death, that on the cross he suffered the judgment that his people deserve for their sin. 
And let's move ahead then to, to verse 46, where Jesus cries out to his Father. And that event serves to show us the perfection of Christ's death. The perfection of Christ's death. Now, having seen what we have done so far about Jesus undergoing judgment at the cross, you may think that Jesus is being mistreated here by his Father, that that the Father is taking advantage, if you like, of his Son, uh, punishing him against his own will. Uh, Jesus is being dragged into this reluctantly, uh, in which case this would be a a terrible scandal for the Father to act in this way, mistreating his Son like this. And yet the words of Jesus there in verse 46 show that that is not the case. Uh, Luke tells us then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last and these final words of Jesus are fittingly a quotation from scripture the last words he spoke before he experienced death were a quotation from the bible and Jesus takes upon his lips a a verse from Psalm 31. It's the psalm that we sang at the start of our service this evening. It's a psalm of David, who was, of course, God's anointed king. And in that psalm, David describes the suffering that he is experiencing as a righteous man. And in the midst of that suffering, he expresses his trust that no matter what these evildoers may do to him, his fate is ultimately in God's hands. And so in Psalm 31, the righteous, anointed, and yet suffering king entrusts himself into the hands of his God. And supremely, Jesus is able to take the words of that psalm upon his own lips as he dies on the cross. And we see that on the cross, he is the righteous, anointed, and suffering king. And that even there on the cross... Still, he expresses his trust that his father will care for him. One commentator even says, this is a call for the father to resurrect him. And Jesus' prayer of trust is an expression of submission to God's will, in which Jesus expresses faith that God will deliver him. And it shows us beautifully, doesn't it, that even having come through the agony of the cross and even having come through the torments of hell and with death just a few moments away from him, Jesus is still submitting himself willingly and obediently to his Father's will for him. He's not kicking back against death. He's not kicking back against his Father. He's not reluctantly being dragged towards death. Now, even at the cross, he is perfectly and willingly obedient to his father and trusting himself to him. It is a perfect death. The apostle Peter writes, when he, that is Christ, suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so if the darkness shows us the meaning of Christ's death, that there he suffered God's judgment in the place of sinners. This particular cry of Jesus shows us the perfection of that death, that he went there perfectly. He went there obediently to his father, entrusting himself 
to his father. And then in between those two events, there is this third event that we're going to look at this evening, which is the curtain of the temple being torn in two. And this shows us the result of Christ's death. The result of Christ's death. Luke says, doesn't he, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And this curtain was the one that surrounded the most holy place, God's symbolic dwelling place amongst his people. And only the high priest was allowed in there. And at that, he was only allowed in there one day each year, the Day of Atonement, in order to offer the blood of the sacrifice there. And so if you like, this curtain was almost like a big no-entry sign. It declared to people, to the Jews, and indeed to all of mankind, that the way to God is closed to us. And it is closed because of our sin. As guilty sinners, it isn't safe for us to draw near to God, lest we be swallowed up in his righteous and holy judgment against sin. And yet when Jesus died, this curtain in the temple was ripped in two. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, we're told that the the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And once again, just as with the darkness, this is God himself who is doing this, using these visible signs to explain the significance of what is taking place in the death of Jesus. That because Jesus has gone into the darkness on the cross, and because there he has suffered the judgment of God against our sin. God, as it were, tears down this this no-entry sign that stands between us and him. And the significance is very clear, isn't it? That through the death of Jesus, and only through the death of Jesus, the way to God has been opened up to us. The writer to the Hebrews explains it like this. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Could God possibly make it any clearer for us? This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That by going to the cross, Jesus has done all that is needed for you to come to God without any fear of condemnation. Rather, with the confident assurance of faith. And that if you come to God that way, through faith in Jesus, he will not reject you. He has taken down the barrier. The no-entry sign has been done away with once and for all. He'll not condemn you. Because the judgment you deserve was suffered by Jesus. And so come to God this way. Come to God through faith in Jesus. The way is open to you. And you see these three different events taken together. The dark sky, the cry of Jesus, the torn curtain. They give us this very vivid summary of what took place at the cross. It's meaning, it's perfection. And its result. And because Jesus went to the cross willingly in perfect faithful obedience to his Father, and because there he suffered the judgment that our sin deserves, the way to God is open 
for us. And in the rest of these verses, Luke shows to us, doesn't he, quite a number of different responses to this death of Christ. And as ever, when Luke shows us, as he often does at the end of his stories, how people respond to what they've seen and heard, it's as if he's prodding us, the readers of his gospel, and he's saying to us, well, dear reader, how are you going to respond yourself to these things? And the rest of the time this evening, I'd like us to look at three of these different responses that Luke shows us here. We've seen the, the meaning and the perfection and the result of Christ's death. And then now let's look at how to respond to these things. And the first response that we've shown is the response of this Roman centurion stood by the cross. And we might describe his response as awestruck worship. Awestruck worship. Luke says, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And we can assume that this Roman centurion had been present at many different crucifixions. He'd seen perhaps dozens of people, maybe more, executed in this same way. And in God's providence, he himself happened to be the one who was overseeing proceedings on that particular day. No doubt he had joined in with the others who were mocking and ridiculing Jesus earlier on. And yet as he watches the way in which Jesus died, he knew that there was something different about this man, Jesus. He had never seen a death like this before. He'd seen the the sky darken. He felt the the ground shake beneath his feet. He heard the many gracious words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the penitent thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Then, as we've seen already this evening, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And seeing and hearing and feeling all of these things uh, leaves this deep, indelible impression upon this centurion. He's moved to awestruck worship. Luke says, this man praised God for what he'd seen in the death of Jesus. And he confessed his faith in Jesus. Certainly this man was innocent. Literally righteous. And in fact, Matthew and Mark in their accounts of this include other words that this centurion spoke. As he said, surely, truly, this man was the son of God. It is the first and right response to the death of Jesus, isn't it? To respond with awestruck worship, praising God and confessing that Jesus is the righteous one and that he is indeed the son of God. And the second response I'd like us to take notice of is the response of this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And his response to the death of Jesus is one of courageous faith. Courageous faith. Now Luke tells us a few things about this man, Joseph. He tells us that he was a member of the Jewish court, a member of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish council who had found Jesus guilty. This man, Joseph, had 
stood apart from the rest of the council in that. He didn't consent to their decision. He didn't consent to their actions concerning Jesus. Mark tells us that Joseph was a distinguished, highly respected member of the Sanhedrin. He was a good and upright man, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this is how he responds to the death of Jesus. Luke tells us, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And we should recognize it took a great deal of courageous faith for Joseph to act like this. On the one hand, he was making it obvious to Pilate that he was a follower of Jesus, and he did that just hours after Pilate had handed Jesus over to crucifixion. And yet Joseph has the courageous faith to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And on the other hand, of course, he was now openly professing before the rest of the Sanhedrin that he believed in Jesus. Joseph knew full well that by doing this, he was putting his life at risk, both from the Romans and from the Jews. And for that reason, up until this point, Joseph had kept his faith in Jesus a secret. John tells us that in his gospel, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But it's at this moment, in the immediate aftermath of the death of Jesus, that Joseph becomes courageous in his faith like he never had done before. It's amazing, isn't it? Of all the times to declare publicly that you're a follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea did so even as the dead body of Jesus was still nailed to the cross. What a time to align yourself with Jesus. He makes it clear by his actions that he stands on the side of Jesus and his people. And it is a wonderful work of grace in Joseph's life that gives him this courageous faith. It's a great example for us, isn't it? We need that same grace of God to strengthen us so that whatever people may think of us, whatever people may do to us, we will be unashamed to stand with Jesus and with his people. Pray that God would give you that kind of courageous faith in your home, in your workplace, in your school, your college, wherever. And then the third and the final response to the death of Jesus that I'd like us to notice in these verses is the response of the women. And we can sum up their response by describing it as loving service. Loving service. These are the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. And unlike most of the disciples, they were still with Jesus, even at the cross, watching these things taking place. Most of the disciples had scarpered by now, but these wonderful women are still there, faithful to Jesus to the end. Earlier on in Luke's gospel, we're told that these are the women who had provided for Jesus and for his disciples out of their own pockets. And their loving devotion to Jesus is evident, isn't it? And they continue to show loving service to Jesus even after his death. And so as Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus uh, took 
the body of Jesus down from the cross. These women followed closely and they went with Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb where Jesus was buried because they wanted to know exactly where they could find the body of Jesus to anoint it for his burial. And having seen exactly where the tomb of Jesus was, these women then hurried off home and they didn't wait around. They got busy that very evening preparing the the spices and the ointments necessary for anointing Jesus' body. Now the Sabbath began at six o'clock that evening and so having made these preparations for anointing the body, the women then rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the fourth commandment. And we can imagine, can't we, that they made arrangements amongst themselves, these women. They said, let's meet at at this time on Sunday morning. And we will go to the tomb early Sunday morning to see the body there. And of course, that's another story, isn't it? And we'll look at that next week. But for now, Luke is showing to us, isn't he, just a, a glimpse of this loving service of these women who had cared for Jesus in his life and who continued to do so even in his death. And once again, it's an exemplary response, isn't it? That as we respond to the death of Christ uh, and all that it means for us, that we do so with loving service of him because of all that he has done for us. And you see in these verses, Luke is showing us Firstly, the meaning and the perfection and and the result of Christ's death. Uh, That he suffered God's judgment in his people's place. He did so willingly in perfect faithful obedience to his father. And by so doing, he opened up the way for us to come to God with full assurance through faith in him. And Luke shows us these three different exemplary responses now to the death of Christ. These responses of awestruck worship, courageous faith, and loving service. And it is as if Luke is saying to us as he writes these things, well, dear friend, how are you going to respond to the death of Jesus? And by God's grace, will you respond with awestruck worship for this righteous son of God whose death is like no other? And will you courageously take your stand with him by faith? And then out of love for him, will you serve him? The death of Jesus demands that kind of response, doesn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves now before you in prayer and we praise you for the cross of Jesus and all that it means to us. And we thank you that Jesus stood in our place. He suffered the judgment that we deserve. He offered himself freely in obedience to your will. And the result of his perfect death is that the way has been opened to you. And we thank you that we can draw near to you tonight with the confident assurance of faith only because of what Jesus did for us in his death. And we pray that we would respond to Christ's death in the right way. 
Give us hearts that praise you for Jesus and all that he has done, the righteous son of God. Give us courageous faith, standing with Jesus, aligning ourselves with him, even when hostility to him is all around us. Help us to take our stand, even as this man Joseph of Arimathea did, and to show our faith in Christ, even in the midst of hostility. And help us then to serve our Saviour out of great love for him. In his precious name, we pray all of these things. Amen.